0: Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At the Movies, Spider Man Far From Home reminds us that this particular Spider Man isn't a Spider Man at all. He's a Spider Kid. I
1: didn't think I was going to have to save the world this summer. I know that makes me sound like such a jerk. I just. I had this plan with this girl that I really like, and
0: now it's all ruined. Another teenager out of his depth is the young Prince Hamlet. Luckily for him, Ophelia has plenty of pluck. Come away, Hamlet. Let's let's try farther down. A wondrous fish indeed inhabits the grove. Fish would like to come ashore. The fish is very welcome. No fish comes willing to the fisherman. And Kiwi cinema icon Ant Timpson has finally made his first feature film, and it's premiering at the same time as he
1: celebrates 25 years of his incredibly strange film festival. The focus was on um, high-profile sort of cult films, and then eventually it started uh, morphing into a lot more recent sort of genre film from around the world, and sort of looking at the hot spots that were happening at the time, whether it was korea or um france and in japan everywhere i go i see his face
0: i just really miss him yeah i miss him too i don't think tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone And the story of the Marvel Universe continues, only a couple of months after we said goodbye to a bunch of heroes in that long funereal conclusion to Avengers Endgame. I've tried several times over the past few years to put into words how I feel about this superhero onslaught that we've been experiencing, and I've come to the conclusion that this is basically Coronation Street, just a very expensive Coronation Street the stories will never end and the characters are the most important thing there has never been anything like this before did you get your passport peter parker here to pick up a passport please many toothpaste Mm -hmm. pack your suit i just want to go on my trip with my friends europe doesn't really need a friendly neighborhood (laughs) spider-man But let's get away from the idea that these films are big, dumb entertainments. They have their share of dumb, to be sure, but they're also very smart, and this latest Spider-Man is a good example. We arrive in New York City shortly after the end of The End Game, and a question that many teenagers care about is addressed early on. If half of the population were snapped away for five years and were then suddenly brought back to life in something we're now calling the blip, What does that mean for school friends who were the same age at the time of the snap? Five years is a long time at high school. And for 16-year-old Peter Parker, played convincingly by 23-year-old Englishman Tom Holland, he's very keen to live as normal a life as he can, at least considering his gifts. He and his classmates are going to Europe on a school trip and Peter wants to use the opportunity to get to know his crush Mary Jane and forget about all that end-game trauma. Not blooming likely, trouble is coming and Nick Fury, still played by Samuel L. Jackson, is determined to interrupt the innocents abroad. Fury's proxy, Happy, played by the director of the first Iron Man picture, Jon Favreau, offers Peter Parker a legacy from his mentor, Tony Stark, a pair of sunglasses called Edith that are connected to the global Stark surveillance operation. Parker, because he's a teenager, uses that power in entirely inappropriate, impulsive and, frankly, disproportionate ways. He's desperate to have a break from all that heroing so he can get Mary Jane, played by Disney's Zendaya, alone atop the Eiffel Tower so he can tell her how he feels. But the new becaped arrival on the scene, Mysterio, needs his help dealing with giant monsters called elementals who are laying waste to the great cities of the world. They were born in stable orbits within black holes. Creatures formed from the primary elements, air, water fire earth the science division had a technical name we just called them elementals versions of them exist across our mythologies
1: turns out the myths are real like thor thor was a myth and now i study him in my physics class
0: Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal, comes from another version of Earth, opening up the possibility to a credulous Peter Parker of a multiverse that might include his cartoon counterparts, the ones we met in Into the Spider-Verse late last year. It's quite a satisfying reference, that, because a little later on we get a set piece that owes a lot more to the visual inventiveness of that animated spider flick than the city-destroying Marvel-by-numbers fracas we usually see. It even manages to include sly visual nods to previous animated Spider-Men. See, I told you these films can be smart when they want to be. And that's not the only element of this spider film that delivers value. The relationships between the schoolmates are fun and the characters are nicely cast. I'm pretty sure the annoying ones are supposed to be annoying and the cute ones are supposed to be cute, but even if it's the other way around, it doesn't really matter.
1: You look really pretty.
0: Therefore I have value?
1: No. No, that's not what I meant at all. I was just...
0: I'm messing with you. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. You look pretty too. Plot-wise, without giving any of the big issues away, this Spider-Man film has a strong villain. Again, casting good actors pays big dividends, and a central theme that brings us back to Earth, as opposed to the galactical concerns that have dominated all the Marvel pictures recently. Spider-Man Far From Home manages to contain domestic issues, like ubiquitous surveillance and artificially intelligent drone swarms together with their artful relationship management and the need to sow seeds for yet more installments in the marvel cinematic universe i didn't think i was gonna have to save the world this
1: summer i know that makes me sound like such a jerk i just i had this plan with this girl that i really like and now
0: it's all ruined i like you peter you're a good kid
1: there's a part of me that wants me to tell you to just turn around run away from all this. And then there's another part of me that knows what we're about to fight, what's at stake. And I'm glad you're here.
0: Spider-Man Far From Home is playing across New Zealand now. It's two and a quarter hours long, rated M for violence, and you really should stay until the very end of the credits. I can't tell you why, obviously, but you will regret it if you aren't still in your seat when the cleaners turn up to pick up the popcorn.
1: I thought your mother was too low, but I see he's too high.
0: You are first among those who might understand. I was a mother to you, and you turned my son against me. Forgive me. My lady, you raised me. I think you protest too much. Reimagining Shakespeare is often fruitful territory for dramatists. You know you've got some good bones there for a start, Tom Stoppard did it most famously with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. There's a very amusing film version of that from 1990 starring Gary Oldman and Tim Roth, if you can find it. And there's a celebrated Kiwi adaptation of Hamlet by Jean Betts called Ophelia Thinks Harder, which takes Hamlet's would-be girlfriend on a feminist and funny journey. American academic Lisa Klein Uh, took a similar tack, although toning down the politics a little with her 2006 novel aimed at a young adult audience. In the book, she doesn't just want to reclaim her tragic heroine, she wants to turn the whole story on its head. Her book and the new film that it's based on are a big what-if. What if Ophelia didn't die in that pond? What if she and Hamlet are in on his whole fake madness plot and actually marry in secret? These are interesting, dramatic hypotheticals for sure, but both the book and the film have to go through some major convolutions to make all the pieces fit.
1: Good night. Take the candles. My eyes are too weary to read. I could read to you, my lady. (laughs) A girl who knows how to read. My brother teaches me.
0: Daisy Ridley, famous as Rey in the new Star Wars pictures, plays Ophelia. She's intelligent, literate, unusually, and strong-willed. She is taken under the wing of Queen Gertrude, played by Naomi Watts, who is unhappily married to old King Hamlet and unfortunately attracted to his brother, the roguish Claudius, played by Clive Owen. Elsinore is a castle full of intrigue, and independent Ophelia is not warmed to by her fellow ladies-in-waiting, but the king's son, Hamlet, proves to be a much more fruitful relationship when he returns home for the summer holidays. If you've ever seen the play, you'll know where this is going. When the king dies unexpectedly, murdered by Claudius so he can take the throne and the queen, life becomes even more perilous for the women of the court. Now that they are led by a womanising bully, the boorish Danish soldiers feel no need to hide their rampant misogyny, a situation that feels somehow familiar, or their scorn for the sensitive intellectualism of the students, Hamlet and Laertes. When Hamlet returns to the castle, heartbroken at the loss of his father, he finds solace with Ophelia, and she finds in him a possible soulmate.
1: At school we dissected a corpse into his parts... There was no room for his ghost.
0: I shall have to take your word for it, my lord. I know nothing of the parts of men. Australian director Claire McCarthy's opening shot is a recreation of Millet's famous 1852 pre-Raphaelite painting of Ophelia, dead in her pond, surrounded by flowers. And visually the film takes its cues from there. Speaking as a committed post-Raphaelite, I can either take or leave that, but I will put a word in for Massimo Cantini-Perini's costumes, which I thought were universally splendid. I can't say the same for screenwriter Semi-Shelas's adaptation, which, either because of the source material or her own choices, can't seem to come up with dialogue that actors can speak and still sound like convincing human beings. It's not quite Shakespeare... In fact, it's often paraphrased Shakespeare, which just makes you yearn for the original poetry. It's that pseudo-courtly English that is supposed to locate you at some unspecified point in history, but nobody here is able to bring it to life. Hamlet! You were so long returning. So long that the funeral wreaths are already taken down. Welcome, Hamlet. We are most happy you are returned. Too late, it seems. Too late to honour your late father seems my father's honour is much besmirched. He grieves commendably as every son who loses a father. Daisy Ridley shows dramatic promises, as Ophelia, but it's pretty clear that the best of her is yet to come. George Mackay as Hamlet is a bit drippy, but that's to be expected. But Tom Felton, who I haven't seen since the end of the Harry Potter films, he was Draco Malfoy, makes a very decent Laertes. The original book was aimed at a young adult audience, so I suppose this Ophelia could be seen as a kind of entry-level to Shakespeare, especially for younger women. I just wish it was as alive as its heroine. Ophelia is rated M for violence, and it opens across the country this weekend. Ant Timpson has been supporting, promoting, and developing screen culture in New Zealand for decades. Twenty-five years ago, he started the Incredibly Strange Film Festival, now part of the international event. Since 2003, he has run the annual 48-hour Furious Filmmaking Challenge, which has helped launch dozens of professional screen careers, including inaugural Wellington winner Taika Waititi. In 2012, he became a producer with the anthology horror film The ABCs of Death, and since then, his name has been on a diverse bunch of international genre flicks like Turbo Kid and The Greasy Strangler. He's finally made it into the director's chair this year with the black comedy Come to Daddy, which premiered at Tribeca earlier this year and gets a New Zealand premiere in Ant's hometown of Auckland in the New Zealand International Film Festival. I spoke to him recently about this transformation into an auteur, but first we had that 25th anniversary to talk about. Ant, incredibly strange at 25. I I always thought that the Incredibly Strange Film Festival felt like a rebellious teenager, which means that um, it's now sort of reached middle age. How has the manifesto for Incredibly Strange changed in 25 years?
1: Well, hugely. I mean, you were you were there in the early days, Dan. You remember um, it was sort of devoted to very much the sort of B cult film side, the retro programming. So we sort of hit all the um, grandmasters like Edward and Russ Meyer and Herschel Gordon-Lewis and John Waters. The focus was on... Um, high-profile sort of cult films. And then eventually it started uh, morphing into a lot more recent sort of genre film from around the world and sort of looking at the hot spots that were happening at the time, whether it was Korea or um, France and then Japan. And then eventually, once it became under the banner of the International Film Festival, it, w- it really was just all new, no retro at all, apart from the odd title. And it was really just... The kind of exciting genre fair that was breaking out of festivals like Cannes and Sundance. And so a lot more respectable <laughs> in its old age.
0: I was going to say that uh, at the very beginning, it had a kind of, uh, it, it felt like it had a punk rock kind of ethos, like a, a burn the mainstream down. Sort of you know you were smashing smashing up pianos on stage, as I recall,
1: yeah, all the real punks must be laughing their heads off at that um, at that analogy because I, I I think <laughs> it was it was um, very much a film geek um, version of what the punk rock ethos is, but we were yeah, we were always giving the finger to what we called the establishment, which was the international Film festival, and there was some good natured um, rivalry, they never sort of uh, even um, acknowledged the presence but I know that bill um, found it all quite amusing the old Bill Gosden, the fest director um, and yeah we made we used to burn effigies of of the of the Big Brother Film Festival and on Courtney Place in Wellington and yeah we smashed the piano on on stage it's 15 years
0: since you and Bill together brought the incredibly strange into the New Zealand International Film Festival family I was amazed at that when I when I saw that that number because that means that it's been with new zealand international film festival for longer than it was not and um what difference did that make to um the philosophy did you feel like your style was ever being cramped by that or did you find that there was a competition
1: um, between you and the other programmers for films no i mean i was really given carte blanche to go as wild and crazy as i wanted to be and in fact there was more um when you look back at the films uh, it's definitely moved away from that kind of ultra underground the films are still brand new in the festival like they're still hot like the t- the titles we got out of Cannes like they haven't played in in any, any other festivals yet so they kind we are the sort of first audiences outside of Cannes which is exciting for these sort of films but they are also it's a worry because they don't uh, there hasn't been like the logical build up of awareness where everyone looks to the US you know once they start doing their um their assets and their sort of um p r machine then it filters down through the net, and everyone gets a sense of like what the new hot titles are, but we we get them so quick, some of them that we have to try and stoke the fire ourselves. How much do you have to choose from in order to be able to
0: sort of distill it down to the nine or ten that you get to choose each year?
1: Well there you know there are titles that in the past that um we've both gone after, <laughs> and so that that overlap is 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 far more apparent. These days than there used to be, like there were I see films in the, in the main program that could easily be under the umbrella of, of the section that I program, and vice versa.: Does that mean that you
0: think that there's, there's a gap in the market for an incredibly, incredibly strange um, sort of micro festival? Do, do, is, do you think that there, there's the material there for that?
1: Well, an, an old friend of um, of ours, uh, Mike, who used to help me out with the with the strange throughout the whole years. He always, when, once I joined the Big Fest, he said, "I'm going to start the awfully odd <laughs> festival as a as a renegade <laughs> project because you've sold out completely." Um, one, I mean, I always thought that we should have been running an underground film festival that ties in with the network of underground festivals because there's a lot of independent New Zealand films that don't get any. That are made and just end up on shelves, and they don't ever get a screening in front of an audience, which is a real shame.
0: Tell us a little bit about the um, the two can titles, um, because uh, by their very nature, they're, they're they're red hot at the moment.
1: Yeah, well, Deerskin, we've sort of got a history of that. I played um, Quentin Dupieux. He's done a he's done a history of sort of very um, unique. Films. He doesn't make a lot, but each one is very distinct and uh, reflective of his vision and his personality. So his new one is called Deskin and it stars um, Jean Dujardin, who was the actor. Fam- I think he was nominated, wasn't he, for an Oscar? I think so. For for the artist. Um, and so seeing him in this oddball, very unusual um, film is is a real highlight. But it's very. It's you know, it's about him as a as a man who falls in love with a desk and jacket, and to kind of (laughs) reveal any more will spoil the fun for the audiences, but it's a very racy 77 minutes, um, and it's full of that very quirky Gaelic uh, sort of humour that he brings to it.
0: Before we move on to your film, I just want to ask you one more question about um, this year 's um, incredibly strange lineup. Can you identify one film that you think is the closest to the to um, the the original sort mm. of mission of of the festival
1: that 's a very good question dan and I, I would to be honest i 'd say the only thing would be violence voyager <laughs> it 's probably closest in spirit, which is the most unusual animation um, animated film that uh, i 've played and I played a few back in the um, in the incredibly strange days as well. But this is way crazier than anything that we've ever programmed in the festival. Um, it's, and the style of animation, for people who remember Clutch Cargo, we're going back to Clutch Cargo days where you have a lot of of cardboard animation in terms of um, thousands and thousands and thousands of these things built for the film. It was all planned out in advance. It took a long time, a lot of years to do it and then it's all done with um in-camera techniques it's really um somewhat extraordinary but kind of befuddling for the first time you you're watching it and you're just you're trying to get your head around like oh my god this is like the, the whole film is going to be like this this is insane um and then the story itself starts to go off the rails and you know what you think uh, it starts off at like a famous and even blight kind of vibe it suddenly becomes this <laughs> very warped and crazed and perverted um, animated film. So it's, yeah, it was really exciting in the way that, unlike anything else I'd seen for, for a long, long time. Well, in fact, it's unlike anything I've seen, to be honest.
0: Let's talk about your film now, Come to Daddy. Debut feature film. Yes. After so many years um, on the showmanship side of the business and on the production side of the business, um, do you wish you'd directed earlier?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I did start off, you know, making home movies like a lot of people do, um, grabbing my brother and friends and going out and shooting things. So I had that sort of ethos, which the guerrilla style, which sort of transformed into what 48 Hours is. But I, I, I applied for grants and made my, you know, pretentious black and white shorts like you're supposed to do. So I, I did, I did that, and then it was going to progress, and um, but I didn't. I went into a cocoon and started working on. Um, fulfilling other people's dreams, which was great. I was getting a sort of, um, you, know, uh, um, a re- you know, a release th- through their their passion and their enthusiasm. I was sort of like part of that whole journey, which was exciting and fun and watching new voices come out. But it, eventually I, I was just like, I came to a point, a crux, of, and it happened when after my father died. I just suddenly, it was just like, a, you know, get trying or, or get dying basically. So it was a, a huge charge and wake up that I felt like, I'm going to do something that's going to be for him, for his memory. It's going to be a film like we used to watch together, um, these crazed British thrillers that I grew up with. Um, and so that was really the kickstart of, like, let's get it done. You're not, you know, you you might be the oldest director for a debut feature film, but um, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Never too late. I'll take that. The idea was came after spending a, a week in a house with my dad's corpse, actually, so... I went through a grieving process with him coming back after Embarment and it was quite a very surreal, strange, cathartic experience for me. And then from that, as I do think about everything in cinematic terms, I started thinking um, after that experience, I was like, first of all, I wanted to, to do something that was kind of like a permanent testament to him and my love of film, which I grew up watching stuff with him as well. So the idea of like why let's use that as a sort of starting point a structure of like um where could we take this so i had this sort of skeleton idea that i went to the writer toby who i worked with before and said this is the sort of guts of something that i think could make a film and then he took that and ran away and came back with a much broader canvas and more ideas and more characters and and I was like, this is fantastic, but it's it's not something I can shoot in weekends. So it's like, this is, this is, but it's a really good script. And I sent it to Elijah Wood, who I'd been working with on a previous film, and we're kind of old mates as well. And when we were doing the script, I always thought, you know, Toby and I felt like, Elijah would be really good for this part. And so it, it was a big, big risk um, putting all the eggs into that. Elijah Wood basket but he just totally flipped for it. I remember he got back within like seconds after reading it and was like, "I love it, and I'm into it." And then everyone else started. The producers came on board, and it took off from there. But he was really the sort of the impetus of it actually becoming a very real thing. Is that what is that what it is
0: for you now? Are you just going to be a director and uh, and just chuck chuck the rest of it and just follow that dream?
1: Well, I think it's 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 very hard to. To pull the plug and say that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to focus on that. I think I've always, um, I don't know, because films take so long to get up and running, I think it would be naive to think I can just sort of hang my hat up on everything else I'm involved with and and wait for the next project to get running. So I'll I'll probably continue as is um, and work on, I'm working on another project with the same writer. Um, and then that 's going to be the focus. I have no interest in receiving scripts from outside to look at directing that doesn 't interest me at all it 's got to come from from something that i 'm personally attached to in some respects so uh, yeah I feel like um if I do it again it 's going to they 'll all play into some sort of personal psyche <laughs> that 'll that 'll make sense after um after a trilogy, dysfunctional family <laughs> trilogy has been made, um, and then and then uh, that'll be it. But yeah, I don't know. Just so you know, if you want to impress me, I like
0: fight stories.
1: Ever been in a fight? No. I have. I once
0: accidentally kicked the guy's ear off. I didn't mean to, but the fucker flew off. I could see right into his skull.
1: I'm addicted. I'm, I'm in love with with it again, with the film on a whole new level, you know, because um, I've just been super fortunate and privileged to be able to to work in and play in this industry for as long as I have. I just, you know, I love film. It's quite... It's, probably quite obvious for most people who who know me um uh, that that it's probably the only thing i can do as well come to daddy
0: has its premiere at the civic on the 26th of july and then plays in other new zealand international film festival centers check the website for details of when it's coming to your town and that's our program for this week we'll close with some music from the film ophelia by stephen price When I heard this track, it's called To Lose Himself in Vengeance. At the end of the film, I thought, ooh, Kate Bush, or maybe an unreleased Sinead O'Connor. But no, it's all Stephen Price, but still quite lovely. Simon is back next time, so please join him for more At The Movies at the same time next week.